Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it is a privilege to have on Dr. Todd Bolsinger. Todd is a speaker, executive coach, former pastor, and author who serves as Associate Professor of Leadership Formation and Senior Fellow for the Dupree Center for Leadership at Fuller Seminary. And he's the author of the best-selling book, Canoeing the Mountains, as well as his recent bestseller, Tempered Resilience. Both of those are outstanding books on adaptive leadership and will be the focus of our conversations today. Todd is also the author of It Takes a Church to Raise a Christian. He's a frequent speaker and consultant, and he serves as an executive coach for corporate, nonprofit, educational, and church organizations in transformational leadership. You're going to find this interview powerfully helpful, whether you lead a large organization or you're trying to lead within. Hi, Todd. Welcome to the show. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, it's a real privilege to speak with you. Loved reading Canoeing the Mountains and Tempered Resilience. And so we'll try to draw out some of those insights. But I like to start with just giving you a chance to talk about some of the key moments in your spiritual journey that's led you for, from teaching leadership into teaching leadership, academic administration, and now coaching pastors and executives. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. I, you know, um, it's so interesting. I think that almost every single thing I've written about or that I've ended up leading in is because I got confronted by a blind spot. <laughs> so, you know, like um, I was doing uh, working at a church, doing work that I care deeply about and realized people weren't being formed as much as I thought they should be formed. And so I started studying about spiritual formation. And then I got a degree in practical theology around spiritual formation and started talking about that. And I ended up teaching a doctor of ministry class on leading communities of spiritual formation. And all the questions the students wanted to talk about wasn't community or spiritual formation. They want to talk about the leadership challenges. You know, what do you do when people say they want to be a deeper community or they want to grow in faith, but they don't do it. Like, and so, so all of a sudden I find myself almost every single time um, and almost every one of my books, there's like some some really sentient quote. Somebody said something to me that's stuck in my brain. You know, why didn't seminary, seminary prepare us for this? That became Canoeing the Mountains. And I, I think I could lead change, but I'm not sure I can survive it. And that became Tempered Resilience. So my experience has been, I listen to people who confront me about my blind spots, and then I try to explore those blind spots and share what I know. And, and that's great. And I, I think I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But when you just look at your two, the, the two latest books that you've done, Canoeing the Mountains and Tempered Resilience, both of them are built around powerful metaphors that almost as soon as you, you know, read the initial couple pages, just like, wow, it's like you almost get your money back from the book, just reading the metaphor. How, how did you, as a, as, a, as a writer myself, and I mean, how did, how did you come up with those metaphors and what was the process that you used and whether it's something funny or I'm just really curious because that's, yeah. they're so helpful and so powerful to come up with that kind of uh, teaching tool that, uh, that almost uh, is just almost self-explanatory in a way. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, so I started speaking at a pretty young age and I realized I wasn't funny. 
And when, when you're not funny and you're young, uh, I learned to tell good stories. I actually came from a family of my dad was a big, tall tale storyteller guy okay. and uh, literally grew up in Alaska and told stories about growing up in Alaska. Right. So as a kid, I was and so I've always loved story, the power of story. And what I realized is a really good illustration is really a story that takes you on a journey. Yeah. And so as a preacher for years, I was always looking for illustrations and literally canoeing the mountains came because someone said to me, Hey, that adaptive leadership stuff is complicated. What do you mean by it? And I went, well, it's like this. And I had just seen Ken Burns documentary and that's all I needed. So, yeah. And the temper resilience is just sort of the same way. And it seems yeah. more like a kind of a traditional a sermon illustration in a way, but I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And those two words together are just really powerful too. Yeah. Yeah. So tempered resilience came from actually, it's built on the metaphor that comes from Martin Luther King's speech in front of the, um, that is now we know as I have a dream speech. There's a section that is printed, that is actually quoted in the more memorial. And I was touring by myself, the memorial, saw that section, wrote that quote down, with this faith we'll be able to hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. And I thought about the fact that my wife and I had seen some blacksmiths in Prague, Czech Republic. And I thought, you know, how do you become a tool that can hew? And I just started exploring blacksmithing as a took a blacksmith, took a black, took two blacksmithing classes. And really, as I started realizing as a metaphor, it was a profound one. You know, you you can't if you run into a mountain of despair, like you look at our African-American brothers and sisters, a 400 year old mountain of despair in this country, you can't bash it with a sledgehammer, you can't blow it up and you can't back down. So what do you do? You transform it, you hew it. And you know, in that speech, there's amazing parallelism. So for those of us who've studied you know, preaching and speaking, hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope, with this faith we'll be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation. So to put the word hue and transform together, all of a sudden you have this moment that becomes so rich. And that literally became the, that unraveled into this whole metaphor that I use for how do you form leaders to develop the wisdom and strength they need to lead change in the face of resistance. Yeah, I, I, I love I, lo I love that metaphor. And when you uh, when you think about the, the whole idea of, of tempered and, and resilient, I mean, those are two words that you can really unpack there, but you know, what, 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 what is your, would you say, um, what's the, what, what does resilience actually look like? And if, if you, can you contrast that if you, I don't know if you've read Nassim Taleb stuff, like on anti-fragile, that whole idea, mm -hmm. what, what, how would you put those two kind of things into dialogue? And is, did, I mean, the way do you mean resilience? Is it the same sort of idea that it gets stronger? Have you thought yeah. through that at all? Yeah. So when most people think about resilience, you know, the, the dominant mindset for resilience for a long time has been Angela Duckworth's grit. Yeah, and, it's, yeah. and when people read it, they even misunderstand her. They think of it as just like you know, your ability to just stick it out, like just gut it out. What you realize is it's a formation process. You can't yeah. just gut it out. You actually have to be formed with grit. And she she talks about that, but it gets missed in her argument. And part of what hit me was the notion of resilience as a capacity to bounce back, to come back, to stay at it. So for me, Andrew Zolli's definition of resilience, and he studied like countries and cultures that needed to recover from, you know, genocide in Rwanda or ecological disaster. And what he talks about it as the capacity to maintain core purpose and integrity in the face of a changing world. 
And if you, you know, spend five minutes with me, you know that maintain isn't a verb that gets me out of bed in the morning. I'm not a very maintain guy, but maintaining core purpose and integrity. Well, that's like at the heart of my faith. That's at the heart of my understanding of life, like holding on to these things that are so important. If we let them go, we, something dies within us. So for me, that resilience is, is what is needed to be formed. So I, you know, I was a spiritual formation person to start with. So the formation of that character quality that, you know, it's close to the biblical understandings of like hubamone and perseverance and, you know, the, the kinds of things that we talk about that when you realize that that requires a kind of flexibility, which is where discernment comes in. So for me, the spiritual formation literature on one side and the leadership development leadership on another side really were saying some similar things. You need not just a stubbornness, you need a maturity and, a, and a, uh, an ability to discern wisely and well while also being strong and committed to your core integrity is, is really at the, the heart of that. I love that. I love that phrase wisely and well and strong. It's um, yeah, it's uh, and I, and yeah, those of, and you probably even had a chance to listen to my podcast. I try to mix in spiritual formation, leadership, and sort of missional thinking all at the same time. So I, I just love how you just, how you just answered that. And I love the background that, uh, that you had. I knew that you were the a leadership and adaptive stuff, but I didn't know about the spiritual formation. So that, uh, that's really cool. And now I can, I'm going to go back and reread the books through that lens now. But, uh, when, when, when you think about the big challenges and, and I know you're, you're working with, um, denominations now, so you don't necessarily have to answer this about seminary. Um, but what do you think the biggest challenge is now, let's say, facing denominations or seminaries or just Christian, um, the Christ following movement as a as a whole right now? And, yeah. Well, in one sense, you know, since both of you and I have worked in seminaries, maybe that's a good place to start. Right. Yeah, so we yeah. expect seminaries to be the place that trains and forms our leaders. But the seminary itself if, is a system that is that is shaped and rewards um, forming scholars. So, you know, people like you and I get PhDs because we went through a 1100 year old process yeah, yeah. Of, of theological or of just of, of academic, um, grid and academic formation. That formation is not built for, uh, creating innovation. It's really built for creating autonomy to be left alone, to think of your own ideas and even, you know, people like Willie Jennings have talked about the fact that the, that the way in which uh, higher education has shaped, has been shaped around kind of this autonomous view of controlling the world that comes out of white European thought. All of that becomes really in crisis at the moment when you realize that the people forming Christian leaders for a rapidly changing world have not been shaped for a rapidly changing world. Like, so, you know, just put the metaphor on it. If your goal is to get tenure, which is lifetime security, it really doesn't create a capacity for change, risk, adaptation, entrepreneurship, you know, experimentation. So that's one of the problems I think we have actually in the church right now is that we are not training people with what I would call the wise capacity to adapt and innovate and experiment our way into the future. You know, we need adaptive leadership and training specifically because of the complexity that we run into really all the time. But it seems like it's even more acute in 2021. Whenever we try something new, you got fear. 
that's internal and external. We have all these blind spots. Uh, there's uncertainty, which again, academics can't stand uncertainty. It drives us all crazy. Uh, but that's whenever we try to move forward, we run into that. And uh, Tony Robbins has a quote I've always liked, uh, the quality of your life is in direct proportion to the amount of uncertainty you can comfortably deal with. And so, I mean, we all everybody can kind of smile and say that's, you know, that's true. But so we're all leaders, but uh, why do we fear change? And why is that perhaps a critical mistake on our part to fear change so much? Yeah, yeah. So think about the messages we've heard. I had a colleague who used to say, you know, you only get a one time to make a first impression. Well, you know, that's true. And our parents grew up with that. And we were often told that. So, you know, show up, do your best as you can. The problem with that is that's actually not true today. Many things are now, many new products are released as prototypes. Yeah. And they're released so that you can be in a conversation with the customer about making it better, right? And so every single one of our computer programs or technological programs or iPhones, they keep updating and getting better. Well, we have to shift our mindset to the idea that, um, you know, a roughed draft is actually the first draft of a paper that you're going to work on many, many times. And most of us really believe that you have one shot to turn something in, you get a grade, you get judged by it. And if you don't do well, you fail. And I want to shift the people to thinking that if you're learning, you're not failing. When you're failing is when you stop learning. And that is a mindset that is so dramatically different than mo what most of us are trained in, that it's that it is actually really disruptive. So what? Well, if somebody's uh, been learned to, you know, fail, failure is um, they think it's fatal. It's the fatal mistake, or it's the it's the end and not the beginning. So how do you um, how do you help somebody to actually get a new idea and to reframe failure and exactly what you're talking about, just the first iteration to something else? Yeah. So a couple of ways. One of the things I said is, especially in the, in the pandemic. So um, March 13th, like everybody else, Friday the 13th, my world completely shut down. Right. I was on a plane. It was the last time I was on a plane for over a year. Wow. Right. Like, like, right. I was on a plane. I flew back from speaking to someplace. Everything changed. 15 speaking engagements canceled. I didn't know what I was going to do the rest the next year. I had no idea that I was going to end up doing 150 webinars. No idea. And the first ones were technologically nutty. And I think we're all going to look back at this whole year and say, how did we ever survive Zoom? It's like the first years of America online in 1999 or something in the internet, right? With dial-up modems. Um, we What we discovered is you can't predict the future. So you've got to figure out how to move into the future. So the friends in the tech industry would say, don't predict prototype. And a prototype is a safe, modest, cheap experiment. I remember somebody saying, you know, fail fast and learn as you go. Mm -hmm. And I had a venture capitalist say, and fail cheap. It's my money, right? So learning how to do safe, modest experiments, you know, don't build whole buildings and build a ministry around it. Start something small that, um, that, that if it goes badly, you're going to get a chance to learn from it and, and change the question. Like the question we always ask is, did it work? That's the wrong question. The question is, so what did we learn? Good. Right. And as soon as you start shifting to that, you start realizing there's so many possibilities of new things. And pretty soon you're developing whole new things that you didn't expect because you would never have known them until you got down the road. You've got to take steps into the adjacent possible before you can move forward. 
And you have a great quotation about, you know, pastor that just wants to survive in, in your book. Um, so why, why do we tend to like to use that word survive instead of flourish or thrive or something? And uh, yeah, so I'm just going to leave it there. Why, you know, why do, why, why does survival the goal and not something better than survival? Is that a human core yeah. tendency or, and how do you get people to think not survive? I want to prevail or whatever. Yeah. 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 I have to say a lot of my work is helping people move from surviving to thriving. Yeah. And yeah. so you thrive as a leader. The problem though, is if you're not sure you're going to survive, you can't think about thriving. Hmm. It's really just human nature, right? It's the first thing we do. It's we, we take care of our most basic survival needs. And what's happening in most churches at the moment is people are hearing really clear messages. If you don't make us happy, we will leave. Yeah. If yeah. you don't like, you know, the church down the street is doing this. I mean, it's I've had pastors say to me that the most demoralizing part of the last year was people who took vows for membership clicked off and went to a new church as quick as they could click on a mouse just to find something that was more suitable to their tastes or more attuned to the way they sell the world. Like so all the membership vows, all the commitments of being the body of Christ, of being members of one another, being the family of God, being the people of God on the mission together, went out the door as soon as people began to say, well, what, what I really need is this thing for me or for my family. And, and yes, people need to take care of themselves and their families, but you start realizing how quickly we, de we devolve to surviving. And when people are mad at you and threatening to leave or threatening um, to, you know, threatening your role as the leader of an institution or something, pretty soon you're talking about surviving. When I was younger, I had the privilege, or you might even say this is kind of also crazy. I, I got to hear G. Gordon Liddy speak. He was that Watergate burglar guy. I think I was in my 20s. I was even a, a seminary student. I got free tickets. He came through and, and he gave this incredible speech, which is just interesting what you just said. His speech was survive or prevail. And he basically gave this mindset contrast. And I get I somehow that got in me when I was young that, OK, I don't want to ever survive. I only want to prevail. Mm -hmm. So I've always had that mindset um, like, you know, I've, I've talked about my divorce on my podcast. But I remember even when it was the darkest time and I wasn't sure. And I don't need therapy in this. I'm just framing this. But I literally thought I was going to lose my kids, going to go bankrupt. And I was probably going to lose my job at the seminary even just because of everything that was happening. And as soon as it clicked on my head, it's like, okay, but I'm going to make a comeback as if that happens. So I was already thinking long-term and I thought no matter what happens to me, this is going to be really hard, but I'm not going to come out bitter. I'm going to come out better. And so maybe that was a God thing, but I always think back, I heard that survive prevail thing. So I've, I guess a coach wouldn't have had to get me to think prevail never has. I've never wanted to just survive because I thought surviving just meant I didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'm a fluke, but uh, so how, how do you help somebody get to prevail, even if they're in a crisis? Because I don't know how you work if you only want to survive. Yeah. Exactly. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's something like, you know, Jim Collins talks about uh, Admiral James Stockdale and the Stockdale Paradox. Yeah, yeah. How did, yeah. They, how did they survive being in a POW camp? By believing that while you're looking at squarely in the eye at the brutal facts of the reality yeah, without yeah. any Pollyanna optimism, you're going to believe that someday this is going to be the defining event of your life for which you wouldn't want to have it ever changed. 
that's that's a statement of incredible hope and to me that's where the gospel really comes in like this notion that you know that i like i say many times to leaders today they'll say like you know how long do you think the church is going to go through this experience of being disrupted uh this from a Christendom to a post-Christendom world for the disruption we're seeing with a whole generation of millennials walking out of the church of less than 40, like 47% of people now say they attend worship service of any kind. I said, oh, we're at least a couple of generations. Like you, you and I are going to probably die in the wilderness and probably our kids are going to too. But the scriptures are really clear that God can do great work over two, three, four hundred years if we're faithful to our moment. So surviving isn't just staying alive. Surviving is passing down the most important things, our core purpose and integrity, right? Yeah, yeah. To the next generation. And for me, thriving is not just about myself thriving. It's about being part of something bigger than me that's thriving. And until you start having a perspective that is bigger than your momentary convenience or even, to be honest, your life, um, I think it's going to be really hard not to just be think about survival. And when you're thinking about survival, you get anxious. And as Trisha Taylor, who's a famous kind of coach, says, um, anxiety makes you stupid. And so you've got to be able to manage your own reactivity and anxiety to be able to make long-term wise decisions that are about flourishing and not just about surviving. Yeah, thank you. I think it's really helpful. And so it's so good. The Christian gospel has a, a real unique contribution right now, especially with that Stockdale principle, because literally we actually have a, a we can imagine God's future regardless of what the present. And that's such a great, uh, great reminder, which gets us back to really um, spiritual formation at some level. And so, you know, if we're going to talk about holding on to our our core purposes and our, you know, our integrity, that's spiritual formation so what's missing right now in you won't i won't even say most because that's not fair to the in, to all the pastors but you know what, what have you seen that's missing in some leaders lives that if they embraced maybe certain practices or mindsets that would allow them to be in a better position to lead uh, from the future and not just from crisis and from anxiety yeah yeah so so this is i mean so i do this this is kind of one of the annoying parts about me is I almost always think of this in kind of an, a, a paradoxical or a, like I would say like a jujitsu way. So I, I spoke, I spent my early part of my pastoral ministry and my academic career talking about spiritual formation. And then I ended up doing work on communal practice of spiritual formation. What gets really missed very often is what's the purpose of spiritual formation? Like what's the telos, the end point? The end point is to become in the likeness of Christ. But is the likeness of Christ doing Christ's mission in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. It is to take on the likeness of Christ doing Christ's mission in the world. So one of the things that's really missing in a lot of our conversation about spiritual practices is that our spiritual practices have to adapt and they adapt to the challenge we're called to. So our calling, the challenge in front of us requires us to develop a long set of spiritual practices that will then show up when needed in that crisis. So, so I always say when I was a young Christian, my spiritual practices literally we're about getting to know who Jesus was. Right? When I became a preacher, a pastor, my spiritual practices were hours and hours and hours in the scriptures so that I could be faithful at proclaiming the, the, the scriptures to my congregation. Well, today I'm not a pastor anymore. So, so what's my use of scripture today? It's not hours in the original texts the way it was at one time. It's much more discernment about the way the scriptures 
help me work with leaders in the leading change. Mm -hmm. So my spiritual practices change over time as they are focused on the calling that I've been given. So in my new book, Tempered Resilience, I talk about developing a rule of life for being a person trying to lead change in the face of your own people's resistance. Like, like that's the most soul-sucking thing for most pastors. It is not the changing world. It is your own people's resistance, mm -hmm. sabotage. So how do you develop the formation for that? And that takes it, again, it takes a set of spiritual practices, but it takes a set of spiritual practices that is focused on that challenge. And the more we think about that, there's kind of an adaptation of spiritual practice for the formation of the thing that we are called to do. No, that's good. And uh, I try to, I mean, I, that's one of my core coaching things too, is working on rule of life stuff and, and not and moving away from cookie cutter to kind of uniquely to the, to the leader. And I like how you just frame that with the, with the vocation. Have you found, uh, are there any unexpected spiritual practices that you see are kind of coming back into vogue or maybe being rediscovered that seem to be particularly helpful for leaders now? I mean, obviously, I mean, other than like just read, just reading the Bible or, you know, praying, if, are you seeing any other, any particular things that are, you tend to find helpful for folks these days? Well, the two kind of core basic spiritual practices for leaders that I start with, one is the prayer of examine out of the yeah, Jesuit tradition. Yeah, so yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of a, I, I joke that I'm a Presby Jesuit really is what I am. Um, but what I love about the Jesuit practices is they were built for people who were missionaries, right? The Jesuits were the order that didn't have monasteries. They believed you were supposed to go anywhere and do anything for the greater glory of God, including holding everything in your life lightly with a sense of detachment because of the greater glory of God. So they were really the missionaries. What I found is when you take those practices, they start with the whole notion of being able to discern in your everyday life the presence of God leading you forward and through what they call your consolations, the places that give you peace and joy and, and freedom. So for me, that prayer of examine has become like the central spiritual practice of both discernment and my leadership in my life. Um, and then when you, know, when you listen to people like Howard Thurman, who says, you know, what the world most needs is for people to come alive. You realize there's this inter interaction between, you know, the, the African-American church led by somebody like Howard Thurman speaking into that a generation ago, and the Jesuits who are talking about what your consolations are, the place where you experience the very presence of God in your life. That set of spiritual practices is the starting for me. Um, and, and the second one is, 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 is which was related, is listening. Um, prayer examine is listening for your life, and Lexio Divina is listening to God in the scriptures, and it's letting the scriptures become the place that God speaks to me in real time about what's happening to my life. And so for a person shaped by the evangelical tradition of believing that the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the scriptures, this is really bringing it right down into the very everyday circumstances of life as God is alive, communicating, speaking, leading, correcting, you know, that those practices become really central to me. What do you think is a person that kind of cut their teeth in spiritual formation? And so you knew about some of these tools. I mean, that's for a long time, but you know, you're kind of in the, you were the spiritual formation person and, uh, you know, and other people, well, we're going to plant churches and stuff. We don't, uh, so it's, it seems to be really fascinating that, because that prayer of excellence was central in my own bounce back as a, uh, as a, as a person, I've done it for 10 years, done centering prayer. It's another kind of contemplative thing. I'm a Bible scholar. So I've, you know, I've always kind of used some Lectio kind of stuff, but it's these, these contemplative things 
have allowed God's grace uh, into my life. And I've shared them with so many people and you see amazing things. And it's most makes me wonder um, because I, you know, I backed into this. I used to, when I was when I was studying entrepreneurship, you had all these folks out your way out in San Francisco and they were all doing like TM. Um, they're all doing these little journaling practices. They're reading the Stoics and, you know, these, <laughs> these other ancient, not reading the Bible. And I thought all these new entrepreneurs, these are new Methodists. Um, and then I'm like, well, we've have all this stuff in the church tradition, but we don't even know about it. So, I mean, so, in a, so I, and it's not really a question, but I mean, have you seen that? I mean, what, what, that doesn't even make any sense to me. So how do we even forget about these awesome tools that we had? Well, I, um, so actually the project that I'm working on now, so after, now after Temple Resilience is really the, over, I'm always working in an overlap. Yeah, yeah. And the overlap I'm working now is the overlap between spiritual formation or discipleship and adaptive capacity building. Yeah, yeah. Um, adaptive capacity, you know, adaptive leadership is about your capacity to lead when you're not an expert. So how do you lead when you don't have best practices? So when you have to literally learn, navigate loss, navigate competing values, try to hold on to your core DNA and adapt it. That's adaptive capacity. Spiritual formation speaks very similar if you think about that, right? It's about the humility. Well, what is what is learning and discipleship, but humility, right? Being a committed learner, um, your capacity to deal with loss. It's John 12, lest the seed falls to the earth and dies, it will not bear fruit, right? <laughs> it remains a single gra grain. Um, how do you navigate competing values? You know, take up your cross and follow me. What are you going to let go for the sake of the gospel? And then ultimately what's most important. So what you realize is what's happened in most of our churches is that we lost our capacity to talk about spiritual formation because what we started doing is building spiritual formation around building big institutional churches. That's good. That would, and I, and I, I come out of bigger churches. I come out of larger, we call mega churches we didn't realize how much of what we were doing, which was about trying to believe that if people were in our church, in our institution, in our uh, community, this would be enough transformation for them. So it created a kind of, you know, useful, uh, user-friendly church that has demonstrated in the last year has not developed the kind of depth of discipleship for a rapidly changing, deconstructing world. And so we need a different set of spiritual practices that are probably going to show up in a different kind of community um, in order to lead them. A lot of pastors in the audience and a lot of them are young pastors. Uh, also, we have some mature pastors. Um, so what would be one or two actions that a, a spiritual leader listening right now today could put into practice that would allow them to become a stronger, more resilient leader, and maybe something that they could introduce within, say, a congregational context that, again, we're not looking for instant payoffs, that's not going to happen, but that would be plant the seeds to have a fruit tree in a, a couple of years. Yeah. So the first thing is, if, you, if you, you just gave a great metaphor, which I happen to love, which is, I really do believe that the way you lead change is through a much more organic metaphor. You change the soil. Um, right. You change the so one of my favorite films and that will probably become the metaphor for the next book is this book called is this film called The Biggest Little Farm in the World, hmm. where uh, two people in Los Angeles took a barren uh, acres of ground in north of Los Angeles and built an organic uh, uh, farm that is now blowed up on the in, in, on the Internet and is being part of the whole regenerative farming movement. What they did is you have to rebuild the soil mm -hmm. 
And the soil is only built through diversity of plants that always put back into the soil everything they take out. So you start realizing that these metaphors that come right out of the scripture about the fruitful soil, about the good soil, you know, the parable of the sower is really the parable of the soils, as you and I know, right? And that soil is really an important thing. So I would say, what do you say as leaders? Ask your question, how do you build the most rich soil for bearing fruit? You're, you can't grow anything. You can tend soil. And when you look at those principles that come right out of biology and right at, you see them in the scriptures too, you know, every indication of a vineyard is in a farm that is bigger than just grapes, right? right? You know, every agricultural metaphor is really about the way in which you take care of the land for generations to make it fruitful, to bear fruit every, for years to come, not kind of the agricultural industrial model that we have today. I do think there's something about creating, I always say, bring diverse voices together, mutually investing in what makes for long-term fruitfulness. And understand that you are growing the grapes that has got to become the wine that makes the world glad. Like it's got to bear fruit. It's not just a matter of what I get out of it. It's got to make an impact beyond you know, your own table. There was a class at, uh, that you could kind of wave your magic wand and have every seminary student uh, take and, um, and maybe teach such a class. Uh, but what, what do you wish every seminarian and maybe even every person who's going to be a pastor that sits in a Bible college would take before they would uh, become a, a pastor of a church? Well, that's, that's, um, I mean, this feels completely immodest, but it is really the course I built. Um, so the course, I mean, I teach one of the largest doctorate ministry cohorts at our school it's all on leading change. And mm -hmm. you know, the first year is about unlearning everything you know about change. Stop being an expert and become a learner. The second year is about you as a leader going through your own adaptive challenges, including your own spiritual formation. I mean, in the second year, all my students have to do at least six months of spiritual direction, coaching, or therapy, um, right? And so then by the third year of the cohort, now they're beginning to experiment with changes for building the adaptive capacity of their people. So finding it. So learning about adaptive change, developing your own adaptive capacity, developing adaptive capacity for people, and then building a project or a, that actually tries to take on one of the larger adaptive challenges. And I think that's the skill set that is needed that has been missing, which is we are to be a community. We are leading communities that are involved in the mission of God in a rapidly changing world. So how do we lead those communities to be faithful to the mission of God in a rapidly changing world. And that that part often gets missed in a lot of curricula. I almost wish I would have started with that question because I think I could have asked you about an hour's worth of questions about what you just said. I'm really curious now, just listening to that unlearning and then you're working through with a spiritual director or a therapist. And then at that point, you're actually rebuilding. So it's almost like you're breaking yourself down kind of rebuilding and then once you sort of rebuilt spiritual muscles you're then going and looking at the problem that you might have come to your program to solve in the first place so what happens i'm most curious about the spiritual direction therapy part six months so again i mean everybody's different but what are you hoping happens during that six months like what's what, like what what's the ideal outcome of a person doing that well, so almost everybody who comes to seminary, somebody said to them, you're the best Christian I know, you should go pro, right? 
It's true. And so, so what they think is they're beginning to become an expert. Oh, I'm going to become an expert in the Bible. I'm going to become an expert in history. I'm going to become an expert in pastoral care. And there is a certain amount of expertise you need to develop yeah. trust. You better be yeah. faithful to those tasks. But that's all that's about is developing the trust, which is like, like, which is like storing up the grain that you then need to pour into the soil. It is risky to take grain out of a silo and put it in the ground. That's when it when you lose the grain or if it's not fruitful, you can't get it back. So what you have to grapple with is your own tendency to want to control rather than learn. Yeah, yeah. So what I want in the second, so in the first year, I'm teaching them to overcome the expert expectation by becoming a, an adaptive leader who's a learner. In yeah. the second year, you start realizing everybody's going to be changed starting with your own transformation. Usually who stops the change process is the leader. It's the anxiety of the leader. Yeah, yeah. It's when the leader starts colluding with the people who say, let's go back to Egypt. <laughs> it's when the leader starts saying, oh, we're going too fast. We got to stop because we got to bring our people along. It's true. You got to go slow, but you don't stop. And yeah. part of the way that people need to go along is they need to be encouraged to go through the same transformation that you're going through. So what I want in my second year with them is they spend all my students, and they say it's the most transformative year of their life, is where they start realizing that they can't embody the very change they want to have happen in their congregation, right down to the very losses they experience, then they'll never be able to lead people through it. Because the third year, they got to then give that to their people. They got to figure out how to develop that adaptive capacity for their people. I love that. That's so that's so awesome. Um, yeah, I know we're running up on the clock here, so I want to kind of run through some of my fast questions, but I absolutely love that. And so um, I'll, I'll definitely put a plug in for what is your DMN program? It's at Four Theological Seminary. So let's yeah. put a plug in for that because yeah. somebody may like, hey, I want to, heck, I want to sign up. <laughs> yeah, it's a doctor of ministry and leading change that I do at Fuller. And, okay, okay. And and many of the things that I teach and many of the, like I, I take entire leadership, uh, church leadership teams to our adaptive church leadership cohorts. It's a church team process that is built on the same thing if you just don't have to read fifteen thousand pages of material no, that's good that's good yes yeah, so i'm going to go through the, the quick questions here and uh, again I, I just so appreciate the wisdom here and uh, it's it's always i always love meeting the authors behind these books and again if you haven't read canoeing the mountains or tempered resilience uh, pick up a copy these are the kind of books that uh, are generative and you'll probably want to read them over and over again so uh, please take a look at those and so Again, I don't know if, uh, if you had a chance to look at the questions, and this is one of my unfair ones, but do you have a truth that most people don't agree with you about? Like most people believe X, but I believe. Yeah, actually, I, I think in our gut, we believe that leaders are are natural. They're charismatic. They're formed. Yeah. They were touched by God. I believe leaders are formed. I actually 100% believe that leaders are formed, not found. That's and, that, um, and that changes everything about the way I think about leadership development. Yeah, that's good. What's your biggest dream for yourself or maybe even for the Christ movement for the next 25 years? You can make it about you, maybe the next books or like where would you like to be 20 years, 25 years from now? Well, my the rest of my ministry is going to be about helping faith leaders thrive as change leaders. That that is what I do. It's I mean, it's why you know I I left my church after 17 years, it was a beach church to go to the seminary. I have seven years as a senior administrator at the seminary. Now I am working 100% of my time with our church leadership institute and my own coaching and consulting about that. What I really want to develop, my dream would be that 20 years from now, when there's a crisis in the world, the governments would look to church leaders as the way to lead through complexity, complex challenges. 
Wow. Right now, they don't even look to us to talk about things like Israel. They don't trust us. Like we don't have the capacity. We need to develop the capacity to lead in such a way that the world would look to us to say, now that's the way you lead through really difficult challenges because those faith leaders are the ones who do it the best. That's fantastic. Now that's a dream. It'll get you out of bed every day. I like that. So thank you. And what keeps you grounded? I mean, you mentioned the prayer of Aximen, but like, what does your, without, you know, you can be, you know, be any more personal you want to be, but like, what does your rule of life look like? Like what's a regular kind of a day look like that keeps you grounded and keeps you in a healthy rhythm? The to the two biggest things that keep me the most grounded are my friends and my family, old friends and my family and nature. I mean, I literally like the, the, the I have to I say I need my I need to be face to face and as close as I can with my oldest friends and my family, the people who I mean, they don't read my books because they hear me talk about it all the time. They don't they don't care, <laughs> but they love me. And and then being outside and being in nature where I'm reminded that I am a one very small part of a creation that is so much bigger than me. That, it, that God loves me uniquely, but not only. That God, this this is my Father's world, and um, and that keeps me grounded. That's that, that's so good, and I'm grateful that you live in California. You got such a beautiful place to live, and you know I feel the same way about Orlando. I get to see the ocean, the blue sky, mm -hmm. and stuff. So I'm, I'm with you. That's that's awesome. Uh, and then you know, last thing, uh, what are two or three books outside of the Scripture that have really helped you? and shape to shape you really deeply yeah well the deep i mean the books that have shaped me the most have been the works it's interesting um it's three jewish authors um have shaped me the most um uh ronald heifetz and adaptive leadership obviously um ed friedman who is about uh, family systems theory apply he was a jewish rabbi applied to the church and then jonathan sachs the most recent his lessons in leadership he's the chief rabbi of london and he did an entire year of Torah reflections based on thinking about leadership. That is just my, it's like been this deep devotional that I've uh, lived in the last year. So I've been deeply influenced by Jewish writers the most in the last few years. Oh, that's powerful. I mean, as far as Ed Friedman's books, um, if for like a pastor, do you recommend like Friedman's fables or just jumping right into one of his um, families, just straight up family systems book? What's yeah. your kind of recommendation? My, my, favorite, my favorite book is Failure of Nerve, but it was unfinished. So it's a, it's an awkward book. Yeah. And so, you know, I think a lot of what Canoeing the Mountains is, is it is, I would say it is Heifetz and Friedman for dummies is what it is. I would say if, if Heifetz and Friedman ran into Daryl Guter from Princeton Seminary to talk about missional theology, and they had a map of America standing in front of them, they would probably have talked about canoeing the mountains, including some of the things that we they learned along the way. Like, like you can be tutored by Thomas Jefferson and still not be able to make it to the Pacific because you need a Native American teenage nursing mother to help you get there. So. No, thank you. That's um, that's really that's really good. And uh, again, appreciate the clarity of your writing. And thanks for the the time uh, today. It's been a real privilege to to have you on the the show today. Um, where where's the best place? Um, I mean, we mentioned Fuller. I'll link to Fuller. I'll try to find the yeah. DM insight. But if people want to get in touch with you, maybe somebody like, geez, I'd love to have Todd come and serve my congregation or coach me or whatever. How do people get in touch with you? Yeah, the easiest way actually is if you send a text, um, the word change to six six eight six six change six six eight six six it's too many sixes in a row but um change six six eight six six what you'll end up with is you'll find yourself at my website 
where at the Church Leadership Institute. And you can just sign up. You can get on our newsletter. You can contact me through that. And that's where I get most of my coaching, consulting, uh, speaking engagements as well. Yeah. Fantastic. And I'll have links to all of your books and some of your social media that you sent me. I just want to double check. That was two sixes, an eight, and two more sixes. Six, yeah, six, right. eight, six, six. Okay. That's a great number. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thank you so much. It's been a real privilege having you. And thanks everyone for listening all the way to the end of this episode. Until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of hope in a world. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm so grateful to have you as a listener. And if you found this episode particularly helpful, would you take a couple minutes and share it with friends through your social media networks? And if you could also please leave a review, especially on iTunes, as that will help other people to find this podcast. I have links to all of the resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes. And I also want to highlight www.centeringprayerbook.com. That will get, is a link to give you some resources and allow you to sign up for updates for the release of my book. It'll be out in September 2021, Centering Prayer, How Sitting Quietly in God's Presence Can Change Your Life. Again, until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be voices of hope to others.